We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Suspidel, coming at you once again with Dr. Alan Fimister. And we're going to be talking about the Council of Constance. I think I said that right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, you should probably pronounce it in Swiss, German or something, or Bavaria. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you. That's, uh, that's Constance. what I was going with. Yeah. Like, what yeah. would it be? <laughs> so, okay, so this is the 16th Ecumenical Council. Contrary to the dodgy numbering that I gave at the beginning of last time when I was trying to work out in my head at short notice. <laughs> so this one <laughs> is the 16th. Um, and uh, it's a biggie. Um, uh, in fact, I mean, it's it's of all the councils, it's the one that's most like Vatican II. Take, do with that what you want but um, <laughs> but it's uh, but, um, I mean in the sense that it's like a big event council mm -hmm. and it kind of arises out of a lot of big problems but turns them into a lot of other big problems <laughs> rather than solving them That's <laughs> <a pile. laughs> uh, yeah so um, so uh, yeah to understand it so it, it, it runs from 1414 to 1418 was summoned in 1413 uh, met in 1414 and uh, and finally dissolved in 1418 um uh it's um it had 46 sessions which is massive um although well yeah i should say that when i say it was summoned in 1413 and met in 1414 that's summoned for reasons that we'll we'll get to um and uh, and a lot of those sessions are also sessions um <laughs> so yeah it's, it's complicated um but uh, the the background is is that the 14th century that preceded it was which which intervenes between vienne and constance was a complete disaster from every almost every imaginable uh point of view so um uh no, let's see what order to deal with the disasters in. Well, I mean, if we remember that Vienne, um, you know, it's, it's the, the big sort of headline from Vienne is the uh, dissolution of the Templars. And that is already flagging up two massive problems. One is that the Holy See's attempt to govern Christendom as if the Pope was kind of also the Emperor and that there wasn't any need for the Emperor has already, uh, you know, it hasn't worked out very nicely. Um, and has in fact unleashed uh, the powers of the national monarchies uh, and that they're much more of a problem than they had previously been and people's preoccupation is much more with the interests of these national monarchies and the crusades are completely neglected and so the ability of the, of the holy see to project force uh, on its own behalf 
which the most most extravagant in, or and far-reaching expression of that was the military religious orders has 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 faltered and in the case of the Templar, Templars collapsed and the other problem is on the strictly uh, hierarchical side is the Holy See's ability to govern the whole church um, in a sort of imperial fashion um, rather than just being a sort of emergency court of appeal um, uh, and supervising patriarchal authority for the West as it had more been in the first millennium. Its attempt to just run everything um, has has also kind of blown up in its face a bit um, and we talked about how Giles of Rome said that uh, wrote this book about how this is the problem with exempt religious orders even though he was the head of an exempt religious order he's saying the holy see just can't maintain proper supervision of these organizations and okay we don't know i mean charles of rome doesn't say this we don't know whether or not the templars are innocent or guilty and probably they're innocent but the council was forced to dissolve them by a powerful national monarchy so that's that's kicking back to the first problem and had to say basically we don't know whether they're innocent or guilty but it's now such a mess that we're going to have to dissolve them anyway i mean that is not a not a desirable uh, situation at all so so there's all sorts of you can see in vienne and of course the fact the pope's in france and isn't leaving anytime soon uh, you can see in vienne well, the, the seeds of all these problems already building up now the religious orders also provide a problem in themselves because uh, whereas there used to just be different strata of, of, of Christian society, widows and monks and hermits and knights and all this kind of stuff, now in, in the last few centuries before Vienne, uh, the, the idea of a religious order as a special international organization exempt from uh, civil and and local ecclesiastical law um, with with massive property and a centralized administration and all this kind of stuff has has built up and these not only are these organizations difficult to supervise properly but they're also intensely competitive with each other and this is undermining the intellectual life of the church because um, they all have their own favorite theologians and they're all cheering for their guy and and that's completely kind of complicating and poisoning discussions about theology and one of the one of the big problems that emerges in the 14th century over this is kind of tied up a little bit to franciscan poverty which is that the 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 ideal of poverty that saint francis propounded was really radical and um you know real dependence on divine providence uh you know worried about where you're gonna live how you're gonna eat from one day to the next or rather not worried because you trust in divine providence that's the whole point um and um but the franciscans even in saint francis's lifetime are not really living up to this well it's this kind of self-destroying ideal in a way because it's so authentic and evangelical and popular with the faithful who are fed up with corrupt clerics and religious that they pour money at the franciscans <laughs> they've always had this problem they're, they're to this day i believe the richest order in the church um and uh, so the uh, a dominican friend of mine said uh, the franciscans will fly in from anywhere on earth at a moment's notice to tell you about their poverty which is very, very nasty but um, but the um but the kind of chief alibi for the franciscans not really following the charism of their founder is kind of well we need to do a lot of academic stuff and uh i was reading this um i was reading this book a few years ago 
by written by some conventional Franciscans, or at least in the conventional tradition. And it was sort of arguing that when you know Saint Francis had that vision of 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 the cross of Saint San Damiano, you know, rebuild my church, which you see is falling down, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course he took it literally. And no doubt God intended him to take it literally, but God also intended him to take it figuratively. That is, you know, by your inspiring example and and, 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 and the, the lives of your faithful brethren, you know, help to save the church from disaster at this difficult moment. Um, but the, this this text, which I was reading, was interpreting his, uh, his inspiration to go and tend to lepers as also, well, as literal, well, well, as figurative and not literal, uh, so that the lepers were actually heretics and other people in intellectual error, and really uh, the Franciscans were founded in order to deal, be academics and deal with 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 people who were in error in universities and stuff. And I'm thinking, I'm sure there was another order founded at the same time that was supposed to be doing that. What were they called again? And uh, and the um, so yeah, um, so the big the chief alibi for not really following the charism of Saint Francis is is the kind of Franciscan intellectual tradition, which Saint Francis was very nervous about because I mean books are very valuable. That wasn't he wanted you know impoverished simple fellows going around preaching penance, not people you know writing volumes and volumes of stuff about their theories about um, spiritual matter and and whether or not Christ would become incarnate even if man hadn't fallen, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so the um, uh, and because the Dominicans are kind of already set up to do that, they're supposed to be mendicant friars with radical poverty, but mitigated by the, the necessities of intellectual life, because they have to be able to deal with heretics. So for the Franciscans to have exactly the same thing means that there's this permanent, they have to kind of say the Dominicans aren't doing their job properly all the time, because otherwise the question of why the Franciscans are doing their job for them might be raised <laughs> um, and uh, um, and so so y- between the Dominicans and Franciscans you get this particularly intense um, build up of, of the football team spirit of, of coming up with theological positions because they're not the theological position of the other lot and um, and and this now Benedict XVI famously in his Regensburg address when he um, he uh, he says that is he, he quotes the Byzantine Emperor Manuel II, Paleologos, uh, <coughs> who was living at this time, as saying that Islam had brought nothing but violence into the world, um, and, and and lots of lots of Mohammedans started threatening and blowing things up until we admitted that they weren't violent. <laughs> um, but uh, if you remember that incident, but in, in that in that famous speech, he says um, uh, that, um, that that this this problem is, well, he doesn't talk about the specific problem I just described, but he traces um, a, a parallel movement uh, to the problem with Islam <coughs> in, in Western thought to Scotus, um, and Scotus's voluntarism. Now, the Scotists get very upset about that, and they don't like it, and they're annoyed about him saying that in that talk. And I'll I'll leave them to defend their their master. Um, but um, but the uh, um, <clears throat> but but after Scotus came uh, Darth Ockham. Oh, sorry, uh, William of Ockham, mm-hmm. and um, and he uh, um, yeah. He, you hit um, Darth right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so so he took this this voluntarism thing to a level a level beyond and um and and uh, and particularly this this position on philosophy called nominalism where you deny the real natures of things and what what's kind of going on there is that 
is that St. Thomas has kind of synthesized the Western philosophical tradition to such a kind of pitch that if you're going to, if you're kind of on principle going to disagree with him, you start having to unpick not just St. Thomas's specific positions, but also, uh, you know, um, everything is sound in the perennial philosophy, as the church calls it, all the way back to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Um, and this this divides the medieval universities into two warring camps. Um, one's called the Via Antiqua, which uh, holds on to the to um, moderate realism, uh, at least moderate realism. The idea that um, that things really do have natures, common natures between things, um, and then uh, which is is really just and this Via Antiqua, the the ancient way is really that the whole tradition of the perennial philosophical tradition going back to Socrates and Anaxagoras and people like that in the very early days of Western philosophy. Um, and th But then the Via Moderna, which is which is arguably where the whole term modern comes from, which should warn you, um, uh, and the, the modern way, um, because modern previously just meant, um, you know, what's happening at the moment, but it starts to mean a new age in the history of the world, as it were, Novus Ordo Seculorum. And, uh, um, uh, and, um, uh, there are the, trouble uh, difficulties here. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so um, uh, yeah, so the Via Moderna is the camp that, that rejects the real existence of nature, and that starts to, to really pull apart uh, the whole of Catholic theology and Western thought, and yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, and, and Protestantism and modern views about the nature of the state and and the whole of dreadful modern philosophy and all this kind of weirdness about we don't know whether the world exists and stuff. The Matrix movies um, and the uh, yeah the surgical career of the Wachowski brothers. They all go back to um, uh, they all go back, as it were, to this the the rise of the of the Via Moderna. You know, and, not, and not to nothing. throw us on a curveball, I know plenty of guys. I, I lived with one out in Denver who would say there's no tree or that tree doesn't exist. I was at, a, at work and the guy I, guy wanted to fight me because he said this floor <laughs> doesn't exist. And I just started stomping around and going, what is that? What do you mean? <laughs> yes. Well, that all basically comes back to this, this, this intellectual disaster in the 14th century. Because if there's no real natures, then there are no real things. Because what kind of what 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 limits one thing from another thing is the fact that this is a different kind of thing to that kind of thing. You know, the fact that there's a glass on top of the table is 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 only true because glass is one thing and the wood of the table is another thing, and one stops there and the other. So once you start saying that there are no real natures, then there's no real things, and therefore you don't really know anything. And uh, and therefore you're trapped trapped inside your head and yeah all this nonsense, um, and if there's no real nature, then there's no real answer to what's a good a good thing or a bad thing, mm -hmm. because it doesn't more or less perfectly realise its nature. So that leads to this voluntarism that Pope Benedict was talking about, uh, where where things are right and wrong because God feels like saying they're right and wrong that morning, and and famously. Um, Occam says that if God commanded you to curse him, that would then become a meritorious act. Um, so, so yeah. Um, and of course, there's no the human nature. So the basis of political thought uh, classically in the West is that man is a social and political animal. He naturally lives in society and society gets its authority from 
from the author of nature god um uh and and that or if there is other if there are no natures then that's impossible and so that leads into this idea that, that there's this kind of social contract which is the origin of of civil authority and 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 once you sign the contract all bets are off and the state can do whatever it likes so it creates this kind of nightmare omnipotent state so so yeah pretty much everything bad in in the whole of modernity comes from from this initial philosophical error and as i say modernity itself is in a way just this philosophical error so that's the kind of right at the beginning of the 14th century there's this kind of intellectual nightmare develops and uh, and <clears throat> This is followed uh, from uh, 1315 to 1317 by a massive famine. Um, it really is kind of Book of Revelation stuff. So, so like all the crops are failing everywhere, cattle dying, and then, uh, so so the, so so it starts. So we've got like wicked error, catastrophic famine. Uh, then um, uh, in 1337, uh, there begins the Hundred Years' War which actually lasts until 1453 which is you will have noticed is more than 100 years so that, uh, between france and england and if you remember there was this legend that the that the master general of the templars on uh, was when he was burnt at the stake cursed the pope and the and the king of france and and it probably is just a legend uh, applied retrospectively because of the bad things because the king of france and the pope both died within the year but the king of france's dynasty died out as well not not the, his kind of meta dynasty the capetian dynasty which is one of the most successful and tenacious dynasties in the history of the world um uh, goes back to the 10th century and as, as a royal dynasty well actually to the 9th century as a royal dynasty and uh, in its earlier form and then and then they can trace their way back a lot and uh, there are still, you know, the King of Spain is, is is a member of that dynasty. But the what's called the direct Capetians, the direct descendants of Hugh Capet, who became King of France in 987, um, <clears throat> they die out in the generation after Philip IV, who we were talking about last time. And, uh, and that then causes this big dispute as to how the throne of France descends, whether or not it goes to the next nearest relative after the direct male line dies out or whether or not it goes to the nearest relative in an unbroken male line and if you say it goes to the nearest relative in the unbroken male line it goes to the to the counts of valois and if you say that it goes to the just the nearest relative then it goes to the king of england um and unsurprise surprise that causes a war because uh, king of England's like yeah i'll have france that's nice um and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and um yeah it's the uh just just to give braveheart a shout out again um despite me thinking that it's you know a historical travesty um uh the um uh it's um the princess in braveheart uh, who is totally implausibly supposed to have had a fling with Rob um, with um, William Wallace? Completely impossible. But anyway, um, uh, she she is the. It's through her that uh, the King of England would be the king would be the rightful heir to the French throne. So so the the son of the weedy effeminate uh, um, uh, Prince of Wales in. Um, in Braveheart is Edward III, who was not weedy or effeminate, and probably not because he was really the son of William Wallace. Um, uh, in fact, definitely not. Um, and uh, but anyway, he 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 gains through his mother a claim to the French throne, and so this is what starts the Hundred Years' War, which goes on for a very long time, as the name yeah, suggests. They weren't good at math back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, 
we're rounding. So, we're just rounding this one up. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So then in uh, 40, in thirteen forty seven, uh, the Black Death hits. So we've had famine and war and pestilence. They got the order wrong, but they've got all three of them there. Um, and um, and this is absolutely horrendous. Thirty to sixty percent of the entire population of Europe die. Uh, exactly how many people that is is not clear. Estimates range from 25 to 200 million. But I mean, this is absolutely devastating. So you've got this horrendous philosophical error, which is basically the origin of modernity and all its works and pomps. Then you've got a massive famine, um, a horrendous war, and a hideous uh, pestilence. And um, uh, and meanwhile, uh, the Pope is still a kind of hostage in France, but uh, a very comfortable hostage who doesn't really want to go home. And um, and he's there for uh, basically seventy years. Um, uh, was Doctor Fauci around him at this time? Say again, sorry. Was Doctor Fauci around him at this time? Uh, not as far as I think. <laughs> um, but uh, um, uh, Urban the Fifth, um, blessed Urban the Fifth, in fact, um, was persuaded by uh, Saint Bridget of Sweden that he really did need to go back to Rome. And he did actually go back to Rome, 1367 October to September uh, 1370. But it was it was difficult. I mean, you know, quite a lot of interesting stuff happened when he was down there. He received the submission of the Byzantine Emperor uh, John V Paleologus, and uh, was attended on by the Holy Roman Emperor. But um, but he yeah he didn't um, he didn't stay. There was lots of trouble and he was talked into going back again and St. Bridget of Sweden warned him that he would not live long if he if he had presumed to go back to Avignon but he didn't listen to her and he went back to Avignon and dropped dead uh, so um, yeah <laughs> so that was the, the I mentioned last time there's a brief sojourn back in Rome that's the brief sojourn back in Rome and then so it's left uh, to um, St. Catherine of Siena to um to try and persuade his successor gregory the 11th uh that he absolutely has to go back to rome now <clears throat> while this is going on i mean rome is in a state of chaos uh the, of course the papacy's running very nicely there's a lot fewer riots and and kind of scary trouble with with scary italians in avignon which is why they like it so much in addition to the fact that they're all french um the popes and cardinals at this point and you know they like the sitting there in the cafes of avignon drinking their glass of um of uh, burgundy and uh, and uh, you know steak chips you know it's just lovely here beautiful women well they've got that in italy as well but anyway um but the um <laughs> so the um uh yeah so um uh, they don't want to go and um uh but there's this, you know, the the, the house of, of Christendom is crashing around their ears from these various different calamities at the same time. The prestige of the papacy is, is in state of collapse, um, and uh, and and this kind of dr this terrible cultural cringe begins to set in. So uh, you see this thing with with the um, most visibly in the architecture, um, in the the the, the 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 all the whole line of Western architecture that's that's developed in this incredible way. Uh, over the centuries leading up to this period begins to falter and they start to desperately want to be classical Roman Roman pagans and they um, 
and they 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 start to build these Renaissance buildings. Um, Renaissance meaning the rebirth of classical paganism, and uh, they start trying desperately trying to write Latin as if they were first century BC pagans, and they they're trying to build buildings as if they were first century BC pagans, and it represents. I don't know if I've said this to you before, but it's I, I always say to the seminarians, it's 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 like the moment in the 1950s when people started realizing the British Empire was falling apart and British pop groups started singing with American accents. Hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, there's this kind of moment of total loss of kind of cultural self-confidence. And so in the, in the same way, the uh, and they thought they were being all kind of radical and revolutionary and, and, and stuff and, and exciting and new, just like the people in the Renaissance did. But really what they were doing is they were showing that they'd lost their nerve in an absolutely total sense. Um, and it's the same way with the Renaissance. And, and um, uh, one of the great Italian poets at the time, uh, Petrarch, um, who's, who spends time at Avignon, he and but is is trying to persuade the popes to go back to Rome. Uh, but he's he's the first one who starts to be very snobby about classicizing a language and to talk about the period from the end of paganism until his own time as a sort of middle period or dark age. You know, so all this all this stuff of, of spitting on all the achievements of Christendom really begins during the period of the Avignon Papacy. So you can see, you know, the philosophy's falling apart, people are dropping dead in the streets, um, the popes are, you know, living the life of Riley in an extremely dodgy uh, um, way, derived, you know, taxing to death the Western Church, and uh, it's this huge bloated court of bureaucrats, and they're, they're, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles from where they're supposed to be. So, yeah, things are not good. So anyway, Catherine of Siena persuades uh, Pope Gregory XI to go back to Rome. And he does finally get back to Rome in January uh, 1377. So that's the end of the Avignon Papacy, sort of. And then uh, and then March the following year, he dies. Um, and so it looked like, okay, the Pope's gone back to Rome, he's died, he's in Rome, the Papacy's back in Rome, we're okay now, we'll try and fix things. That's not what happens. Um, basically, almost all the cardinals are French. The um, the Italians and the Romans, particularly, are furious. Obviously, that the that the papacy has been stolen from them all these years, and they uh, and they're, they're desperate to make sure it doesn't happen again. And so they gather for the conclave uh, at the end of March uh, 1378, and uh, the Romans all gather outside the conclave. And they start to chant rhythmically, elect a Roman or die. And, uh, and uh, so the, um, the cardinals probably do feel a little bit pressured. Um, and uh, the cardinals really, really want to go back to France. And, um, uh, but they are really nervous that, that, that their, their actions in kidnapping the papacy may, may not be you know, smiled upon by the chaps outside. And, uh, and that might go badly for them. So, uh, so they decide to elect a guy from outside the um, the, co the College of Cardinals. It's the last time. So, so the the previous Pope Gregory the Eleventh, he's the last French Pope, as we talked about last time. They're like, after this, they never ever do that again. Um, uh, Italians never let it happen again. Um, and uh, the um, and and the cardinals after after they elect this guy as pope who's not a cardinal they never ever elect a non-cardinal again as pope so um 
His name is Bartolomeo Crignano. He's actually, he's not technically a Roman. He wasn't born in Rome, but he was born in, in Lazio, Latium. Um, and uh, yeah, so he um, he's he's becomes Pope Urban the Sixth, and uh, and he um, uh, and the, they completely recognise him as Pope. He's crowned and everything. There's no initial suggestion of any doubt over his legitimacy as Pope. But then the cardinals get a nasty surprise. He was quite a quiet and unassuming fellow before he became Pope. But once he becomes Pope, he he well. There's, there's a nice way of seeing it and the, and the not so nice way of seeing it. And they're probably both true. One, what the, the not so nice way of seeing it is that he um, is that he went nuts. Basically, he was just like he wasn't expecting to become pope, and he just goes 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 mad. He's like, I'm not pope. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> so, such a that's yeah, I was imagining is someone just walking up to me. Hey, uh, buddy, you just got elected pope. Huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> it's like we by our apostolic authority declare and define that uh that, you know ac milan are the best football team in the entire make the best of it um so uh yeah um so so that's the one theory which definitely the cardinals who don't like him which is pretty much all of them uh um uh um fix on the other one is that he's just like you swines kidnapped the papacy for 70 years look at the chaos around you you're complete scumbags i don't want to have anything to do with you um uh, so which is probably also true um and um so uh, so that but very quickly the cardinals realize that they are out you know that you know you know, like what's what's uh, Connie? Oh, Godfather keeps coming. Connie Corleone's husband. You know, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, you're you, you're not having anything to do with the family business anymore. That's your punishment. You know, and then they they, they throttle him in his car. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the, the cardinals are no longer having anything to do with the family business, um, and uh, the cardinals are not happy about this. And uh, so it's clear that he holds them in utter contempt, and that he may have lost his marbles. Um, and they so they basically they 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 go off to Anini, which is uh, fittingly enough, which is where this problem all began. That's where. Philip the Fourth's Yobos uh, beat up Boniface the Eighth. Uh, the French cardinals, only the French cardinals, flee to Anini, but that's the vast majority of them. Um, and they uh, they start to issue declarations about about what a dodgy guy Urban the Sixth is and how they weren't really free to um, uh, weren't really free to choose him and all this kind of stuff. And then they send letters off to the non-French cardinals and say, oh, you get over here, we're going to elect a new pope. And uh, and then they move off to a town called Fondi, and there they elect Clement VII as their rival pope, Robert of Geneva, uh, who is basically a Frenchman. I know Geneva's in Switzerland, but it wasn't in those days. I mean, admittedly, also it wasn't in the Kingdom of France. But anyway, uh, but it's still French-speaking. So, um, so the, I mean... Avignon wasn't in the Kingdom of France, but anyway, so um, uh, the um, uh, so they and, and Clement the Seventh, so-called, then goes off uh, back to Avignon. So this is what establishes what's called the Great Western Schism. So you then have these two lines of popes, and um, uh, and yet yeah, it's pretty nasty. It would take a very long time to go into and explain. There's a sequence of popes in the two different obediences, as they're called. The obediences meaning the people who follow the two different. Popes, different countries 
related to their rivalries with each other line up with different um, papal claimants. So France, predictably, goes for the Avignon line. Um, uh, England, because of the rivalry with France, goes for the uh, Roman line. Uh, Scotland, because of its rivalry with England, goes for the Avignon line. So, you know, and so it goes. Um, and, um, uh, and, of course, they're desperate to get people to back them so um they'll give you anything so you can get a dispensation for pretty much anything at this period um because the two rival papal lines are desperate to get you on their side so i remember going to a talk uh by this benedictine monk in oxford which he pointed out that uh, that uh, i've forgotten which line of popes it was during the great western schism but one of them had given a dis it might be more than one because you could say, "Well, this guy's offering this. What are you offering?" Um, uh, but uh, um, had had given them a dispensation to eat duck on Fridays because it was kind of aquatic, um, and uh, and and I, well, it might have even been more sweeping. I might have been. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they said there were no. That's right. They told him the monks in in Oxford told the Pope or whichever Pope it was there are no. There's no, we're miles from the sea here. Oxford's the furthest place from the sea in England. How can we possibly eat fish on Fridays? You've got to let us eat meat on Fridays. Like there's two big rivers that flow through Oxford. One very big river that flows through Oxford. Um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, but uh, so they got away with that. And he reckoned it was still enforced, this dispensation. But anyway. um, and uh, um, so, um, yes. So then. Um, uh, so then everyone gets scandalized. Both lines of popes are as dreadful as each other. And so they've got, they're, they're handing out frivolous dispensations and trying to, you know, get money out of people. Um, uh, and, and everyone's horribly scandalized. And it's even worse than it was when the popes were in Avignon. And so uh, they try to fix the problem in 1409 uh, by holding this council in Pisa. Um, and uh, basically the cardinals, because they keep, whenever one of these popes dies, the cardinals like promise each other that if, if they, if, if I'm elected pope, they all say, if I'm elected pope, uh, we'll, I'll talk to the other guy, we'll have a joint ecumenical council and we'll sort it all out and everything will be fine and we'll abdicate in favour of some agreed third pope who will be the real pope and as soon as they're elected they're like i'm the pope i can do whatever i want yes kiss my ring and uh, and the, and the so the um, uh, kneel when you say that kiss um, my red i was just pope. thinking of zod and superman kneel before zod <laughs> yeah exactly that's right um yeah so so it's a nightmare so eventually the frustrated cardinals um and everybody else who's frustrated um get together and hold this council in Pisa. Now, this is a problem because it's rejected by both of the two papal lines. So, and this is, this reflects another problem which has been building up over the period, which is conciliarism. So, because the papacy has been a mess for a long time, and now we don't even know who the Pope is, and nobody knows how to solve this because we don't know who the cardinals are, because obviously the cardinals, who the cardinals are, depends on who the Pope is. So they need to, so they think, well, who? What? we, we don't know who the Pope is, we don't know who the cardinals are. The Eastern patriarchs are all in schism anyway. There's Latin, there's Latin patriarchs, but they're a bit nominal because we've been kicked out of the Holy Land since since the end of the 13th century. So what on earth are we going to do? Well, who, who's next? Bishops. Okay, so what? How, what's, what's the exciting thing you do with bishops? Ecumenical councils. So we're going to have to have an ecumenical council, but you can't have an ecumenical council unless the Pope convenes it. Um, so, uh, but we don't know who the Pope is. That's the whole problem. So this this error develops, uh, or that councils can be created without 
the say so of popes basically uh-huh. and um so so that, and this is this error called conciliarism which is now definitely a heresy because it's incompatible with the solemn definitions of the first Vatican council um arguably it was an error rather than a heresy because it's 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 falsity is deduced from divine revelation rather than being directly apparent from divine revelation but that's uh that's a that's a complicated question whether it's an error or heresy before Vatican one but it's heresy now so uh conciliarism um and uh so uh, they they get together this pseudo ecumenical council of pisa and uh the cardinals and the bishops uh elect a new pope uh pope alexander the fifth and um uh and he um he only lives for a few months so he is succeeded by Pope John the Twenty Third, not the John the Twenty Third of um, John Twenty Third uh, the First. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, some people claim that it wasn't until John the Twenty Third, uh, Saint John the Twenty Third of Vatican II fame, became Pope that it was it was definitively established that Rome did not recognize these Pisan popes. So, some people claim that yeah, the Roman line was the real line, but then then uh, the Pope was a uh, Pope. Gregory the Twelfth, who was the Roman Pope at the time, was legitimately deposed by the Council of Pisa and replaced by Alexander V and then John the Twenty Third, and then uh, the 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 whole thing was rectified by the Council of Constance, which we're going to get to, um, and then uh, and and that's the line of popes. But other people would say and. Um, and it's it's contrary to what some people will will try and tell you. It was not the case that the Pisan popes were generally accepted before John the twenty third of the twentieth century, because if you look at the uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia, the old one from nineteen ten or whatever it is, that 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 you can that's on the New Advent site. Um, uh, that you look if you look up those popes, you'll see they're described as anti popes. So it's not true that uh, that, that those Pisan popes were, were necessarily accepted. But anyway, but if you're scoring at home, your scorecard's all over the place, right? Y- yes, yeah, it's it's all very confusing. So um, and in fact, it's even more confusing because in fact there isn't. There's a missing Pope John. Uh, like the, they got the number of Pope Johns wrong <laughs> at some point. So so in fact, there haven't been. Um, there haven't been 23 Pope Johns. So I suppose you could say that the current, if you were a Pisanist, which uh, then you could say that, the, that John the 23rd of the 1960s was in fact, uh, or the late 1950s, was um, was the 23rd John because the other John the 23rd was really John the 22nd and John the 22nd, anyway, forget <laughs> about it. It's too confusing. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, the Pisan Popes are not the real deal. But anyway, um, uh, so, but most of, most of Christendom accepts them. So, the uh, the Avignon popes are left with just Scotland and Aragon, continue to recognise them, and um, and the uh, the Roman popes are still recognised by uh, the ruler of Naples, and I think King of Hungary, if I remember rightly, um, and um, uh, but but most of the rest of Europe is is now pro Pisa or pro uh, or is neutral to pro Pisa, and. Um, but that well that would already still provide a problem two problems one that not all of of christendom is accepting the Pisan popes and two that they're not the real popes um uh, so the um but um uh apparently john the 23rd is not great he's as bad as all the other ones and uh, and he's he's living the high life and uh, and 
and enjoying himself and just like the other ones and everyone's frustrated with him and uh, the emperor Sigismund who isn't actually everyone calls him the emperor he is actually the king of the Romans because he's not been crowned by the Pope but anyway we'll just call him the emperor Sigismund because everyone calls him that um and uh, uh, so the emperor Sigismund uh the Holy Roman Emperor-ish elect um uh he um he was he says to like John the 23rd in speech marks um okay there's these other two you're you've got the whip hand now most people recognize you go to them say right now let's have an ecumenical council again and you two will abdicate and i will abdicate and we'll have a compromised candidate and then that will finally solve it and they'll they'll cooperate with you because they'll get the best deal they, they need to strike a deal now because they've lost most of their support and um and john the 23rd is like no i'm the pope I'm the Pope. I can do what I want. AC Milan, they, uh, you know, um, and uh, so the <laughs> so um, uh, yeah. So um, so everyone gets really frustrated with John the Twenty Third, and um, uh, and eventually, under very very heavy pressure from the Emperor, he agrees to summon. Except it's not really summoned because he's not really the Pope. Uh, the Council of Constance, um, uh, and again, the reason it's in Constance uh, in German-speaking lands is because. The uh, the the Empress Sigismund's fed up, and he doesn't want he doesn't trust the Italians any any further than he could throw them, and he wants he wants the uh, he wants to hold the council as far away from the influence of, well they don't, obviously don't want it in France because that that's blown up in everyone's faces, and they don't want it in Italy because they don't trust the Italians, um, and so basically they want to have it in Germany. That's the reason it, later on why the Council of Trent is held in Trent because that's technically part of the Kingdom of Germany, but. Mm -hmm even though it's Italian speaking. But anyway, Constance is not Italian speaking, it's German speaking, and that's where they they hold this council that isn't really an ecumenical council. So, um, John 23rd convenes it. Now, um, being somewhat on the back foot, um, uh, Gregory Twelfth, the Roman Pope, who is actually the Pope, uh, he, now, um, he now thinks, okay, perhaps it's time to negotiate. And... Um, Meanwhile, uh, John the Twenty-Third, as I say, was very reluctant about the whole thing. So, um, so John the Twenty-Third uh, is kind of um, uh, he's like, "How do I get out of this? I, I like being Pope. I don't want to stop being Pope. Um, uh, it's really good." Um, and um, he uh, he 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 says, "I can't just say I've changed my mind, lads, because uh, because they'll go completely mad." And um, so he, uh, so on the 20th of March, 50, uh, 1415, he decides to just run away because he thinks, well, if I run away, it won't count as an ecumenical council. I get to keep being Pope and that'll be great. And um, uh, so the, um, the, the council obviously is absolutely furious. He does successfully run away. Uh, so they start to, and actually conciliarism, people often think that, 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 that Constance is just, mentally conciliarist right from the start and certainly there are problems because i mean it's convened by a, a not a real pope in the first place who was himself elected by a uh, self-summoning ecumenical council but the um but uh really it's 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 john frank third running away that really forces them to say the really strongly conciliarist things because they have to claim to still be a legitimate ecumenical council mm -hmm. after the pope has run away so they start to issue statements about um the fact that they directly received their authority from God, and that you know the Pope can't dissolve them um, uh, without them agreeing, and all this kind of stuff, and so they start saying stuff about the supremacy of councils over popes, and them receiving authority directly from God 
and not via the papacy. And this is going to cause huge problems for centuries and centuries until Vatican I. Because there's a whole kind of school of theology in the church, a conciliar school of theology that flows into what's later called the Gallican school of theology that, 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 that claims the superiority of councils over popes and denies the genuine universal ordinary jurisdiction of popes. And, and, and of course, because they don't want the popes to solemnly define that, that their doctrine is false, they also want to they, they want to deny the infallibility of the popes unless the the, the definitions are received by the whole church, um, uh, which is their way of stopping their position being outflanked by a doctrinal statement by the popes. So um, and this is particularly marked in a in a in a document called Hec Sancta, uh, which is issued on the sixth uh, of April, fourteen fifteen, by the Council of Constance or the pseudo Council of Constance, um, uh, which um, which says that the, the various of those claims that I've just uh, described. Um, the council itself, both Pisa and uh, Constance, are are problematic in the way that they're organised. There are there's more than a hundred bishops there, but they are um, but there are many 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 more non bishops uh, mm. who sit as if they were members of the council like anybody else. So you know you've got abbots who aren't bishops, and you've got other clerics who who are and, and loads of theologians and canon lawyers sitting there. So so partly because card because um, parliaments and estates and these various different representative institutions that started to appear particularly in the 13th century have been developing rapidly in Europe at, at the same time uh, so they, they they're thinking in terms of those sorts of institutions when they put together the Council of Constance and so they're, they're not it's, it's more like put together like a kind of Parliament of Christendom and they also uh, they 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 get the people, they get the delegates, or delegates, of course, already a bad sign uh, to call them that, but they get the, the voting members of the Council of Constance vote and organize in nations instead of in other ecumenical councils where, the, you know, one bishop, one vote. Um, you've got non-bishops in large numbers voting, and then, but they vote in groups uh, based around, uh, because the University of Paris, which is the greatest university of Christendom, um, is is itself organised in national groups. The student bodies, uh, is, the body is organised in national groups, and there are these four nations, as they're called, um, of the uh, what are they called? The nations are. Wait, I'm down. Where are you gone, your nations? There they are. The Italians, the French, the Germans, and the English, right? Um, and uh, the English includes the Scots, which I'm sure pleased them, um, and uh, and the and the Germans includes like you know the Bohemians and stuff like that as well. So they're they're, they're much bigger than just those areas. Um, uh, later on, when they try and win round the uh, the Spanish bishops to accepting a unified papal candidate, uh, they add the nation of Spain to that. So you end up by the end of the Council of Constance, you've got the five the five nations of the West. Um, Italy, France, Germany, England, and Spain. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, now that's all completely dodgy. I mean, I mean th that's it's totally not legitimate for an ecumenical council to function in that way. And it shows this phenomenon we we began talking about at the beginning about how um, how there's this slow development of of national identity beginning to and national monarchies beginning to supplant the universal authorities of Pope and Emperor and the universal identity of, of Christendom. 
So, uh, anyway, yeah. So, on the 29th of May, 1415, uh, uh, they declare um, John the XXIII uh, deposed. And uh, this pleases Gregory XII no end, so this is his opportunity, and he decides to kind of cut his losses. And, uh, and so he agrees um, on the 4th of July, uh, 1415, uh, he, his legate appears at the Council of Constance and convenes it as an ecumenical council. So, uh, so basically, he's 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 ignoring everything that happened beforehand. He's he's maintaining that he is the only real pope. But he's saying now you are uh, an ecumenical council. I'm making you an ecumenical council. I'm endowing you with the authority to elect and to determine the manner of the election of the, uh, my successor. And then, having finished that piece of paper, uh, uh, Gregory the Twelfth Legate puts that one down and picks up. Um, his second piece of paper, which is his uh, decree of uh, abdication. So uh, Gregory the Twelfth abdicates, and uh, so now there is no pope. There is a valid sitting ecumenical council, and it has been endowed by the pope, who's now ceased to be the pope, uh, with the power to elect his successor. Um, meanwhile, they managed to capture and imprison John the Twenty-Third. So he's sitting gloomily in prison in Constance at this point. Um, and uh, so then they're like, "Okay, now we've got to deal with the Avignon guy." So they, they, so the Emperor Sigismund goes off in person, um, and uh, and they send off all kinds of ambassadors and all the other, you know, uh, great monarchies of Christendom are like, "Okay, give up now." So this is Benedict the Thirteenth, and um, he doesn't give up. So you'll often hear they, they get really irritated with him and eventually even Aragon abandons him and he gets left on this little island, which is the only place off the coast of Spain. It's the only place in the world that's, that recognizes him as Pope. And, uh, and he, he creates some cardinals to elect his successor and then that guy creates some cardinals and they fall out with each other and elect two rival successors. And one of them, one of those two rival successors to Benedict Thirteenth finally submits to the Pope who's elected by the Council of Constance years later, but one of them doesn't, and we don't really know what happened to him. So um, so basically, uh, you'll often hear people falsely, uh, as it were, simplifying the Council of Constance and saying, oh, well, no one could agree who the Pope was, so they all agreed to abdicate in favour of this Council, and then the Council agreed to elect uh, one successor to them all, and everything was happily ever after, aren't Councils wonderful? You'll often hear people say this. But this is nonsense, right? Because A, the guy who summoned it in the first place, John the Twenty-Third, changed his mind and ran away, was deposed and locked up by the Council which he summoned, right? So, so if he was really the Pope, then the church ceased to exist. Um, uh, B, um, uh, the, the Avignon Pope never agreed, and although although one of his successors did agree, C, one of them didn't ever, and we don't know what happened to him, so he probably just died without any successor, or perhaps he elected Dan Brown Pope, or, you know, you pick. Um, but, the, but, um, but, but whatever you want to do, um, uh, the church ceased to exist in the 14th century, unless you accept, sorry, the 15th century, unless you accept that the... Um, that, that Gregory the Twelfth was really the Pope. So, in fact, in that sense, Constance politically resolves it because it shows that the other candidates are just incorrigible and, and impossible and gets everybody immensely frustrated, and they all accept what Constance does because there's there's no alternative. But in terms of 
of, of the idea that you could be neutral as to who the real popes were before Constance and after the beginning of the, of the Western Schism, it's impossible. The only way the church wasn't destroyed by the Great Western Schism is uh, if the Roman popes were the real popes. So there we are. End of rant. So, um, uh, so after a long time of fruitlessly trying to persuade Benedict the Thirteenth that he he should abdicate, they declared Benedict the Thirteenth deposed as well. They 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 kind of go through the motions of deposing all of them. Well, they were the two that aren't that didn't abdicate um, uh, because because uh, they are trying to cover their bets. So they think falsely. Uh, that well, I suppose it is a sitting. Well, yeah, but it wouldn't be a sitting legitimate council if the uh, if Benedict Thirteenth was Pope. But they think falsely that the council, could, a council that had summoned itself, which is what it would be if Benedict the Thirteenth was Pope, can depose Benedict Thirteenth, which wouldn't be true if Benedict Thirteenth was really the Pope. Um, but 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 because all of these conciliarist ideas are floating around, that they depose all both of them, both John Twenty Third and Benedict Thirteenth, because they have to make sure that they've they've as far as it lies within them dealt with the problem according to all of the different theories that are floating around as to who the pope is and what a council can and can't do so finally on the 11th of november 1517 sorry not 1517 i've jumped ahead another century uh, 1417 they um they elect uh martin v as pope and he is apart from on this little island off the coast of Spain, he is recognised by everybody as the Pope, and the whole wretched thing is brought to an end. And uh, there are then um, seven reform decrees put together, which are then promulgated by Martin V. Now, um, Gregory the Twelfth is careful to make clear that nothing that happened before he convened the council counts, and Martin V is also careful only to he sort of recognizes everything since gregory the 12th um he, he, he uses some kind of ambiguous circumlocutions to avoid offending the different schools of opinion so he talks about everything that the council has done in a conciliar manner we recognize but but i mean that's kind of like everything that is should be recognized is recognized which of course doesn't actually tell you anything and then he actually confirms different things done by the council at different stages by his papal authority uh, but without uniformly recognizing everything that it did either before it became a real council or even after it was a real council um uh, so so he's very very careful about what he's doing so hex sancta is never recognized um uh though this some there's some attempt to dispute this at the moment but anyway we won't go into that um but uh hex santa sancta is never recognized there's another decree you have called frequens which as the name suggests is about the fact that you've got to have lots of councils and frequens it isn't a doctrinal decree thankfully but it, it's trying to create a kind of quasi-parliamentary situation in the church uh, whereby basically Martin V has to say where within five years there's going to be another council before he dissolves this council and um, of course now that doesn't really bind him because he's the Pope and he can't be bound in disciplinary matters but of course they think he can he doesn't say whether he thinks he can of course he thinks he can't um, uh, but uh, but he goes along with it because he doesn't want to bring up the issue of whether he can because he doesn't want people going off and saying that they can bind him so he thinks well if I just go along quietly the question of whether or not I have to go along quietly doesn't come up so so Frequen says that he has to 
announce a new council within four to meet five years later before he dissolves this one and then before he dissolves the next one he has to announce a council to meet within seven years and then every 10 years thereafter now now eventually that none of that happens i mean well some of it sort of happens but it doesn't really happen Mm -hmm. um and the popes uh you know careful to summon councils in inconvenient places as late as they possibly can and then nobody turns up and they say nobody turned up what can i do let's go home um and uh, so obviously they're very worried about this but they take it very slowly they don't actually repudiate these conciliarist theories until them until it's you know constance has you know receded several decades into the past um so so they're, they're they're being very careful around the whole thing um he takes the name martin because the 11th of november is the feast of saint martin um uh but there we are um and uh, so um now uh, constance does a number of other things which are some of which end up actually being real acts of the council and some of which don't so this is constance in the broad sense um uh, there are two uh, in uh, you can see this is you know the Obviously, as we've been talking about all these horrible things in the 14th century, this is the kind of nasty soup out of which Protestantism is going to emerge. And uh, 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 some of the signs of this, uh, two of the most famous signs of this, are these two heretics, uh, John Wycliffe, who's English, um, and Jan Hus, who's Czech from mm-hmm. Bohemia. And, and Hus is a great devoted follower of Wycliffe. I mean, not in person. I mean, he's, he reads his writings and is very impressed. Wycliffe is long dead by the time Constance starts. Um, and they have very kind of proto-Protestant ideas about, you know, denying the efficacy of the sacraments of immoral clergy and uh, denying that there's any source of authority other than the Pope. Oh, sorry, excuse me, other than the Bible uh, in the church. And... Um, uh, with Hus, uh, it's it's also entangled with the whole nationalism thing because Bohemia is a kingdom, but it's a kingdom that's inside the Holy Roman Empire, and it's very dominated by German speakers. And of course, that's going to be a problem all the way down to the 20th century. It's part of the background of World War II, um, and um, uh, and and the uh, the hostility to uh, well, the, the enthusiasm for Hus gets entangled with with the. Um, with the hostility to the Germanization of the Kingdom of Bohemia among actual Czechs. Um, and uh, the, the Hussites are also very keen on receiving communion under both kinds. And, um, and in fact, that's one of the things Constance does, is it defines that it can never be illicit to receive only under, to administer communion only under one kind. So uh, I remember I uh, once dwelt uh, in a diocese that shall remain nameless, where the uh, the bishop had um, oh, this is a long time ago, um, where the bishop had uh, forbidden uh, the administration of communion only under the form of bread at mass, and so that that decree I didn't have quite the chutzpah to point this out to him in person, but that decree would be null and void uh, on account of the decree of Constance that that it can never be uh, illicit to administer only under one kind. So we are. Now, if you can go back in time, if you could, <laughs> would that would that screw up the timeline? Would it be that back to the future timeline or uh, <laughs> Avengers? What if timeline? I went back in time to tell the bishop that he couldn't do that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Um, uh, I'm still trying to get my head around how time travel works in the latest Avengers film. I don't, I'm not competent to yeah. tell <laughs> um, But the um, yeah, so um, 
so that's a, a one uh, another issue it deals with. There's a, there's a theorist called Jean Petit who may or may not have taught a dodgy doctrine of tyrannicide um, about it being legitimate to kill tyrants in various circumstances. Um, and uh, a doctrine which may or may not have been his doctrine was also condemned by uh, Constance. Although, uh, for, for myself, when I read this decree of Constance to condemning tyrannicide, I find it slightly confusing because it's so so broadly defined that it seems to say almost nothing so basically it condemns the doctrine that you can at any time for any reason anyone can kill a tyrant who they put or someone who they think is a tyrant and of course i mean that's so broad mm -hmm. that nobody would agree with that doctrine so so i'm not really sure how that's uh and certainly um later on in the in the 16th century there's a dominican lay brother who assassinates king henry the third of france and um uh a surprising moment in, in french history uh, jacques clement mm. OP. um and uh, and the then pope gives a a, a a barnstorming speech about what a great guy he is um uh, for, for having done this, because 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 Henry the Third was a was a, a bad Catholic, um, and uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so so you go and look for yourself at the Tyrannicide document, uh, the paragraph produced by Constance. I, I it seems to me that it's so broad that I don't really understand. Um, I mean, certainly Saint Thomas in the De Regno says, you know, don't go around killing tyrants all the time because you'll usually get something worse than you got when you killed a tyrant. Yeah. Uh, but that's more of a prudential. Well, a little discernment goes in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, uh, so, yeah, so so um, communion under both kinds can't be enforced uh, such as to make communion under one kind illicit. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't just kill tyrants willy-nilly. Um, uh, then there's another thing. I don't think there's really a document about this, but the, but one of the one of the issues that comes up at the council is over the Teutonic Knights. Now, the Teutonic Knights were the third largest of the great military religious orders created during the Crusades. Frederick II, you remember him, the dodgy Antichristy type who crowned himself in the Holy Sepulchre. Um, uh, Frederick II, he had uh, invited them to come and ethnically cleanse Prussia. I think we talked about this. Um, and uh, and they'd taken over that territory as their own territory. And um, so, uh, shortly before the Council of Constance, um, the Lithuanians, who are, as we mentioned when we first talked about the Teutonic Knights, cousins of the Prussians. They belong to the Baltic, uh, the Bolts. Um, and they... They, uh, they're pagans until very late, uh, like the Prussians, they worship snakes, and um, I've got various Lithuanian friends, and when we're in our cups, I accuse them of being snake-worshipping bolts when I don't agree with them um, <laughs> on something. But, uh, um, but the, uh, yeah, so the Lithuanians um, uh, decide to convert to Christianity, and uh, Jageo, uh, apologies to Lithuanians because I'm pronouncing it the Polish way because I can't remember how to pronounce it the Lithuanian way. Um, and uh, Jageo, he uh, he says he basically the Polish royal line has ended in a female uh, Saint Jadwiga, and um, uh, and Saint Jadwiga is supposed to be marrying a rather dashing uh, Austrian type with with smooth manners and a, and a, and a, and, a, and a mean waltz, um, and uh, and and uh, she. Um, but Yageo says to the to the um, 
to the uh, to Jadwiga and the, the Greybeards of the Kingdom of Poland, if you marry me instead, I and my people will all convert to Christianity and merge, well, at least join the uh, Grand Duchy of, of Lithuania to uh, the Kingdom of Poland, and you'll become immensely powerful, because at this point, look at Lithuania on the map now, it's very small, but in those days, it was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so the, the Greybeards of the Kingdom of Poland, whether out of piety for the uh, desiring the salvation of the Lithuanian souls, or because they were salivating at the idea of becoming the largest state in Europe, persuade, or both probably, uh, persuade Princess Jadwiga to uh, marry Yegeo, and Yegeo duly becomes a Christian, and lots of Lithuanian souls are duly saved. But this is a real pain for the Teutonic Knights, because they are really into this ethnic cleansing business, um, and, uh, and, and the excuse for their ethnic cleansing conquest and governance of the Baltic coast is that they're getting rid of these nasty snake-worshipping pagans. So if the Lithuanians all suddenly become Christians, that's going to ruin things for them, because Lithuania surrounds uh, the eastern flank of the Teutonic Knights state, mm-hmm. and on the western and southern sides, they've got only Christians on their frontier, so they won't be able to conquer any more territory. So they decide to kill the Lithuanians before they can be baptized in, in another edifying moment for the history of religious orders. Um, and uh, um, and um, yeah, so the obviously the Poles and the Lithuanians are really annoyed about this, um, and uh, they defeat them. At the Battle of Grunwald, um, which the Poles are very excited about to this day, and probably the Lithuanians are too. Um, and um, uh, but the uh, the Teutonic Knights and the um, and the Poles both rush off, and the Lithuanians rush off to the Council of Constance to get them to uh, determine the theological question of whether or not um, it's okay to invade a country just because it's pagan. So it seems that the the, the the consensus view of Constance and of, of theologians, Catholic theologians ever since, is no, it isn't, um, and that, that, uh, that a, a ruler has to be um, has to be doing lots of bad things in natural law uh, and not just idolatry, although that's also contrary to natural law, um, uh, in order for it for, in order for him to count as the kind of tyrant that a Christian. Uh, ruler can invade and conquer. Um, so, uh, and and this, and and although there isn't a specific decree of Constance on this question, that generally becomes accepted, possibly because of the Battle of Grunwald, um, as the correct answer to the question. And uh, so, so when the Spanish start colonizing South America at the end of the century, uh-huh. um, they're very careful to, you know, um, or most of them are. Um, uh, Cortez, anyway, at least according to his friends' accounts of how what happened, they kind of like say, you know, you've got to stop invading people's countries and kidnapping their populations and sacrificing them to their gods and eating them, uh, because that's tyranny. That's definitely tyranny on anyone's account of tyranny. And if you don't agree to stop doing that, all bets are off and we can invade you and take over your country. And they're like, what? We don't speak Spanish. And they're like, great, open fire. Um, and uh, so, so, I mean, what gatekeep? Uh, what his arms off. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, uh, it's, it's probably, probably they were not given a reasonable amount of time to consider the demands of the Spanish, um, but, but, but they at least ticked the box, however nominally, uh, probably on account of this dispute of the Council of Constance. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Wycliffe gets condemned as well. There's a whole list of the errors of Wycliffe. And Hus gets condemned. Uh, now, Hus actually comes to the Council of Constance, um, and um, he, uh, um, 
they give him uh, Sigismund, the Emperor Sigismund, gives him a safe conduct to the Council of Constance. Mm -hmm. And then when he gets to the Council of Constance, after leaving him to wander around town and send a few postcards home to Bohemia, they arrest him and chuck him in jail. And he said, but I have safe conduct. And they're like, yeah, but you're heretics, so promises heretics don't count, so shut up, click, bang. Um, and uh, so, he's, so he's thrown in jail, and it's not terribly edifying, really. Um, and, um, uh, and they... Um, and then they put him on trial for heresy. He refuses to recant any of his positions, says, he can, he'll, just like Luther does later on, he says, I'll only accept it if you prove to me that it's false according to scripture. And they're like, yeah, whatever, you've made up your own interpretation of scripture for everything, we're not interested in that. Right, um, and uh, so they put him on trial for heresy, and they burn him at the stake at the Council of Constance. So there we are. Again, prudential decisions of ecumenical councils. If you want to believe that the prudential decisions of ecumenical councils are divinely inspired, uh, as some some clergy would like us to believe about the last ecumenical council then uh, then you'll also have to believe that burning czech theologians at the stake after giving them a safe conduct as well as ethnically cleansing albigensians um uh, are all completely legit um but anyway uh, so so goodbye jan hus um they put this sort of paper hat on his head with heresiarch written across it and then they they um they they tie him to the stake and put kindling up to his neck around him and and apparently it doesn't burn very well and some old lady comes along and helpfully gathers some extra twigs to chuck onto the pyre um <laughs> act of great piety anyway um uh so we uh, help you here you guys aren't doing it right <laughs> <laughs> so there we are so that's the that's uh it all winds up in um 1518 after the 46th session um, with uh, Martin V trying to be as ambiguous as he can about how much of it he's approving um, in the hope of wriggling out of it later on. And uh, that brings to the end the Great Western Schism. And it, it's it's very interesting because he's elected on the Feast of St. Martin uh, 100 years uh, prior to the Reformation. So the Reformation's conventionally taken to have, have, have broken out on the 31st of October, um, 1517. And... Um, uh, which is just short of obviously it's uh, it's eleven days short of a hundred years after the election of Martin V, and of course Martin Luther, who um, whose actions famously trigger the Reformation, was actually called Martin because he was also born on the vigil. In his case, well, he was um, Martin V wasn't born; he was elected. But Martin Luther was was born on the vigil of Saint Martin. So this is kind of eerie sort of. It's almost as if like. God seems to occasionally give people a hundred years to sort out their ideas and then smites them. And uh, it seems a little bit that this is kind of going on with Constance, you know, that the Chris medieval Christendom is given one more century to try and get its act in order, um, which it singularly doesn't do. And then boom. You're not talking about these times, are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you mean about, yes. Well, uh, yes, yes, I don't know if we're... I don't know if um, <clears throat> those questions about um, certain Portuguese apparitions will come up. What, uh, uh, what are you <laughs> talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, that, there's Constance. Now, there is, uh, of course, um, another council in the meantime before the Reformation kicks off, um, the Council of Florence, which is the sort of last great hurrah of the Middle Ages and uh, the one of those of these late medieval councils that really is rather marvelous but we will we'll have to get on to that next time till next time thank you doc <laughs>